Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? Uh, We have a really cool theme this month. Today we're talking about non-horror A24 movies, the production company that seemed to come out of nowhere and... It has been a gift from the heavens, I gotta say, having A24 as this burgeoning film studio lately. Tim, how are you today? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm good. They're, uh, I'm, I'm also a big A24 fan. They've sort of become an icon of the movie culture, I'd say, right now. And uh, they put out some really great films, and they have a really neat model, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But before we do, Tay, let's make a bet. What are we betting on? <laughs> All right, I got 28K. I want a three-way parlay. Number one, we forget to do the tagline. Number two, I say the word effective at least five times. And number three, you name drop Elias Kataeus. Will you take that bet? I'll give you <laughs> plus odds on that bet. Yeah. yeah For sure. So, Especially all together on the parlay. Money. I'll take my, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to be honest. I, uh, I am not a gambler. I don't know much about gambling. And I think that's why maybe the movie today... Um, why I'm such a fan and it works so well for me. Um, I think there is a degree of escapism into this stressful, horrible life that the main character of the movie, um, Uncut Gems, is living. What do you think, Tay? Yeah, I think living outside that kind of bubble of sports betting, even though it's becoming so much more prevalent and pervasive in culture, like, you know, you see mm-hmm. casual sports fans now turning to sports betting. I found it in like literally within the past year to six months, even the advertising for it skyrocketed and it's become so much more. Well, it, just, it just became legal in at least in Ontario, yes. where we are here in Canada. I think it became legal just in the last few but months. You could do sports right? betting so, before, but now I think online sports betting is what's opened up because I think like app based, right? That kind of accessibility yeah. was illegal for a while. Yeah, because you could go to the store and fill out a pro line and a do a parlay on a lot of the sporting events but you kind of had to go into the store to do that for quite a while and i i did that as a teenager a little bit uh but i haven't dove into the world of sports betting i don't gamble uh those Mm -hmm. just those things don't aren't part of my world and yeah you're right seeing this whole world that we don't that we're not privy to in uncut gems is pretty eye-opening because of a lot of things i think but specifically for me it's the level of realism that this movie contains and the direction of the Safdie brothers that really makes it so interesting and unique because this feels like just a real world that I have never stepped foot into that I kind of am intrigued by kind of thing. Yeah, and it is fully fledged. Yes. We'll talk about yeah, it. it is. The Safdies and their approach to production and things like that, there's a lot of adherence to realism they try to get real people from these real sequences in as much as possible they have their actors do a lot of research and tailing of people in the cultures that they're looking at uh, and i think it makes for a very powerful and here count it here's one effective package uh in this movie um before we do go any further uh let's uh let's get some of the paperwork out of the way we are talking about uncut gems so this is tay and i this is our selection for this non horror a24 month we'll do a vote if we haven't already with uh with you guys to have you pick the other one that we're going to talk about uncut gems uh concerns a diamond district jeweler and gambling addict named howie ratner who makes bet after bet in pursuit of his big win uh it's nice and simple like that for the most part 
uh, starring Adam Sandler and directed by Josh and Benny Safdie. Uncut Gems was released August 30th, 2019. But most people probably didn't see it until later that winter. Because uh, this was, as much as it was an A24 production, Netflix had a large chunk of the distribution rights. So I know that that's how I saw it first. And that's how you can see it right now. It's still available to stream on Netflix. It might be one of the ones that they have evergreen rights to. Oh, like you mean like preordained rights to I think like I think they had a hand in the funding to the extent uh. that like it's not going to cycle off of Netflix because I mean that was um I think January 2020 was when it hit Netflix because it was around my birthday the following month where I had a bunch of friends rewatch it with me um and a lot of them ask why would you ever rewatch this movie I've now seen it many times I watched <laughs> through the Criterion with uh with some friends and then also watch the commentary i'm a big fan of this um wait so yeah how how many times have you seen this movie four or five i'd holy say holy smokes yeah i um and and i you know again i had friends ask like why would you ever rewatch this and i think it's the same reason i like watching horror is there is there are movies that intellectually and mentally and even a little bit emotionally i can get into if you give me a good character and I understand what they want and I understand how it's difficult that they're not going to get what they want right away and then they, they eventually get it or they change and realize they don't need it i mean i just laid out what 99 percent of well-told stories yeah i can i can get hooked into that and and feel some catharsis by the end of the movie but horror movies and safty brothers movies where they have a a physiological effect on you they start making you sweat or they make your shoulders tense up things like that i find that still very powerful and something that i seek out um maybe akin to like you know a roller coaster it is it is a controlled experience you're not actually ever in any danger but it it takes it further than just stimulating whether or not i think it's a good story or i like a character uh so the classic notion of the cinema of attractions yeah I love it. This movie is, oh, I you know I should say when we first agreed to do this for the podcast, I was dreading rewatching this movie, and I'm coming at this movie as a fan of mm-hmm. of the Safties and of this movie, but I was dreading having to go back through this hellhole of a movie because it is so mm-hmm. tense and <laughs> it stresses me out. Uh, but I gotta say, the second time watching it was much easier and it was so much easier to consume this time than the first time i just remember literally not being able to sit comfortably the first time seeing this movie you're yeah you're yelling at the character to like stop doing what he's doing and you're squirming in your seat like seeing him make bad decision after bad decision and this time watching it knowing the ending and kind of knowing the structure it's still stressful it's still unnerving to watch a character do this to themselves yet i i was able to like enjoy the movie this time a little bit more and i did not have as much of a hard time as i thought i was going to Mm -hmm. yeah no there are definitely diminishing returns it does not have the same effect on me it did the first time because again you know where it's going even when it goes to a bad place half of the not half a good chunk of the value and the effect of this movie i think is that at any given time you're like well, certainly Howie's not going to compromise his position again. He just got ahead, right? Every time he gains a little bit of ground, he doubles down on betting whatever he's gained into something else. 
And it is this process of just seeing someone make so many decisions you're able to tell yourself you wouldn't make in the same position mm-hmm. and still having to watch them go through with it. Yeah, and you're kind of on the on the fence about whether to cheer for him or cheer for him to get caught so that he can't keep doing what he's doing. It's like mm-hmm. a it's a constant tug of war I feel towards this character and being like, all right, well, I really hope he nails the bet, but also I hope they catch him before he can send the money off to make the bet. <laughs> yeah, no, it is this pull and pull because it is exciting to see somebody win, even when it's a stupid bet, even when the odds are against them, even when it's been shown that they're not a good person, that they are an adulterer, they're a poor father, um, they're greedy, they're obsessed, they're rude. And he is and, all those things. He he is yeah. an awful character. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, no, it's it makes for an entirely compelling experience, and we'll get into it in a second, but before we do... Uh, we should note, uh, so the budget was $19 million, so A24, is it, what is their limit? Because, like, at the beginning, their sort of, like, log line was that they didn't do more than 20 mil? I thought it was 20 at the start. Yeah. yeah. But I don't they know. They may have I think changed that, at this point. I, and I did hear that they adjusted the model for a specific movie. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if the model has stretched, it at, like, overall, or if it was just, like, they ex- granted an exception to a movie. But yeah, A24 has this brilliant low, like we're going to give you a low amount of money to make your movie, but give you maximum creativity to make your product. And mm-hmm. it's really worked well, uh, it's really worked wonders for a lot of promising directors, up and comers. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, it's that trade off that bigger studios might give you more like 100 or $120 million, but they're going to have a lot more input control. They'll be checking in on a regular basis. They'll be checking on that investment. A24's $20 million investment, which still a lot of money in terms of movies, is not at no. all yeah, anymore. Really so it is, if that absolutely bombs, but still makes like a movie with some cult interest or some cultural importance or it makes makes waves for A24's name, that almost pays off itself anyway. Yeah. Right. And and it has paid off. They are now, as I said, like they are a known member of the of the film landscape. Um, to the They're starting to like, get into all know, the major awards. Yeah, yeah. They've gotten awards. They you know they work with other with other production um, entities like Netflix and things like that. Um, they produce a lot of different types of stuff. Um, obviously, horror lends itself to lower budgets, but um, character pieces like this, um, small budget comedies things like that there's some very interesting stuff and they do lend they do give opportunities to new up-and-coming directors so this these are these are all very um valuable things and and you know they are known enough that they are you know subject to memes and criticism too because at a certain point this production model is going to produce potentially more uh pretentious stuff or difficult to read content um so there's that very popular joke that that went around for a while that a24 is this is what a 24 year old thinks film is right (laughs) and i think that's worth noting that like i think that's a sign that's an accomplishment that like if this small studio is so present that people are now making memes out of it that's that's how you know you've made it and fun fact about how the name is derived it's actually usually something you see on a slate before a shot on set it's written on the slate a24 and a stands for the real and 24 stands for the frame rate 
So yeah, it's actually so like I mean, I actually pieced it together when we were on a set one time, and I was like, "Oh, that's a really obvious way to create your production company name." Of mm-hmm. course, that and it's, right it's just really smart, simple. It kind of fits their model, and it, I think it is worth noting. Like they they won Best Picture already. Like, this mm-hmm. is a pretty noteworthy studio for that reason alone. It's not a minor feat to win best picture and they won for moonlight which is also a pretty young up-and-coming director and barry jenkins like the the way that they promoted the score cinematography of that movie has made this company into like i don't know quite and it's put them in quite an enviable position i'd say Mm -hmm. yeah yeah they got yeah the jenkins david lowry um the daniels right who just had their they currently have a ongoing massive run of everything everywhere all at once yeah but they started earlier with a24 with swiss army man after doing music videos um and i mean they also they uh they helped launch uh the safties who we're talking about today prior to uncut gems they did um good time with the safties uh the safties had done i believe just two features before that daddy long legs and heaven knows what yeah um both i haven't of seen which either are, of them i've seen heaven knows what and um that one's difficult. <laughs> that one's about, you know, heroin addicts. And it doesn't have, I think, some of the comedy or charm that even Uncut Gems definitely has and Good Time to an extent has. Um, there's a very good chance we'll talk about Good Time in the future. We have another topic for a month that we're going to get to. Good Time is my favorite of theirs, but like Uncut Gems is right up there too. I love, I really love them both. I think they're so cool, but there's just, there's something else about Good Time that, that sort of takes it for me, but I'm sure we'll get into that in a couple months. The Pattinson factor. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. Um, but so the Safties, uh, they're, they're brother writers, they're New York born and raised, they're Jewish, all these sort of, um, cultural, um, identity things come up in this movie, Uncut Gems. Uh, when I was listening to the commentary, I found out, so, Josh Safdie uh, does more of the writing. They did. They wrote this with, uh, I want to say, Ronald Bronstein. Is that the name? Oh, the co-editor? Yeah. 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 Bronstein has a writing credit, and yeah, he co-edited it. But So Josh does more of the writing, and on set, when they're directing together, he's more in, um, he's on the monitor or in, it's called Video Village. Is yep. that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's watching sort of what you're getting on the cameras and tracking what you're getting on shots. Benny does more of the editing, and oddly enough, I'd say he works the boom mic while they're on set. Oh, um, that's cool. He likes being closer to it. He likes hearing what they're getting. And apparently as they go, they don't do any playback um, shot to shot. Well, if Benny's on, on sound, then they, wouldn't, then they would know what they're getting. I get, and I guess for the most part, he's he's directing as an editor, and Josh is yeah. directing as a writer. They storyboard everything. They make detailed shot lists. They know what they need, um, and uh, and as they go, Benny knows this is what I need for the edit. Josh knows this is this is what we need from the script, and they don't bother with playback to see what they got. They generally seem to just they'll do the scene one way, and then they'll do it another way, and then they'll maybe do it a third way. If they're getting what they know they need, and then after the after trying it a couple ways, they'll move on. And even if Josh Safdie is looking at the monitors, you still have to have an enormous sense of trust in your cinematographer if they're telling you they got the shot. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing playback, you have to. You can't just rely on your own eyes. You're talking to your DP as much as possible in that scenario, yeah. and you're like it's a collaboration, not probably just mm-hmm. between Josh and Benny Safdie. At that, if that's the case. 
and I know that they used a pretty noteworthy cinematographer in Darius Kanji for this movie. Mm-hmm. Is no slouch in the movie world. He's coming off some huge movies in his past, from Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris to uh, David Fincher's Seven. Uh, sorry, yeah. I'm trying. I'm stumbling on the guy's name. The director for Delicatessen, uh, Genet. Oh, I don't. I don't know. Oh, yeah, uh, the guy who did Amelie, Genet. Oh, oh, um, and he did, he did Alien 4? Yes. Which yes. was so, it's so weird that, like, he did Amelie, and they're like, who should we get to do the next Alien? Um, I'm gonna get his name in a sec. Jean-Pierre Genet. Uh, so he's worked with some, pr- some pretty prominent directors in Woody Allen, David Fincher, Michael Haneke, and mm-hmm. Jean-Pierre Genet in his past. So, like, this is... A, a very skilled cinematographer they got this guy for a reason though like we're gonna dive into it a lot today but how the the parameters they set them for themselves to shoot this movie were ludicrous and if you're not extremely skilled this is a movie that you would never shoot this way because it's mm-hmm. incredibly difficult on a technical level yeah, before we hop into the production and the shooting and things like that, do you want to speak briefly on sort of what the Safdie style is? And I think based on your your background, sort of like in film school, you can also loop in. I hear a lot of them being compared to John Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder, I wonder if you have anything you you sort of can can go go to that without going too uh, too too far into the weeds. Yeah, well, a lot of it is not maybe worth diving into super deep. Uh, until mm-hmm. we get into like our actual content but as far as the realism comparables go Casavetti's has a way of shooting so realistically that people questioned like if he was ever using professional actors pretty much and the Safdie's kind of the the way their movies come off almost appears the same way a lot mm-hmm. of this comes down to the way they're shot and the actors that they cast mm-hmm. uh, they are mostly bent around casting non-professional actors who actually exhibit more real-life qualities of the either the characters or the occupations of the characters that they're trying to uh, create. Yeah, and that and so in Uncut Gems, there's a ton of non-professional actors that just make this movie feel so much more lived in. Like this is a real world with like real people, and Adam Sandler just happens to be in it. Uh, and he's very immersive, don't get me wrong, but you can tell like certain actors in this movie are not actors, and that really does help. And same with Cassavetti's movies. There are a lot of non-professional actors or just like lesser-known actors used, and he mm-hmm. creates realistic scenarios. He does not use... Bl- uh, Cassavetti's, like the Safties, does not use a lot of blocking in their scenes, so the camera is doing a lot of catch-up. And this is an enormous effect on the viewer it's really underrated but Mm -hmm. if the camera doesn't know where the actors are going to be it's playing catch up the whole scene unlike when you have blocking and the characters know where they're they're called t marks where they know where their feet have to be based on the t marks that are taped onto the ground and usually those can be pretty extensive to make sure actors are in the exact spots they need to be in a room but when you don't have that blocking, the cameraman is trying to catch up the whole time. The camera person is trying to catch up the whole time. And because of that, the frenetic energy 
lends itself far more to realism than a more staged blocked scenario. Does that make sense? Yeah, especially when you have these sort of magnetic personalities or obsessive characters, people who are always moving anyway, whether, I mean, with the Safties, we're talking about heroin addicts or small-time criminals or obsessive gamblers. Uh, with Cassavetes, I watched, um, after I watched rewatched this for the episode today, I watched Killing of a Chinese Bookie for the first time because I wanted some context. An incredible movie. While the third act of that movie really like threw my head for a spin, I'm looking forward to rewatching it when I understand what to expect because the first two thirds of that movie made sense and then the last third didn't uh, in terms of movies, you know, and how they work. But yeah, it's all that same thing. And we'll talk about this. The scene that we picked sort of has some great examples of this where. Yeah, when when you don't have rehearse ahead of time, your actors going to stand here, then they're going to walk to here and stop, and they're going to say the lines from here, then they're going to walk from here. And that's if you're even having walking, because a lot of people will just sh- set up the camera for this shot, and then set up the camera for the walking shot, instead of just tracking the person around. But in this case, you're in these little cramped uh, spaces, like the KMH jewelry shop, where you're shooting on this camera and he's just following these people around as they're moving as they feel their character would move. And, um, is, yeah. Darius Kanji is catching up with them constantly, which is all made more difficult by how long the lenses are that he's using. But I think, well, maybe actually let's get in, maybe we'll get into how it's produced and shot. Um, uh, Kanji says they used at the smallest focal length, 75 millimeters and up to 350 millimeters at 350. Um, I don't know what you're doing to be honest. I, don't, I, I assume I don't that's know. like shooting down the street outdoors, but I do, I couldn't find it. It might actually be, there's that director's podcast, but I was looking for it. Cause back when the movie came out, I, I was really interested in how it looked. And I did some research just for my own edification. I want to say he was, they were above 150 millimeters in the jewelry shop. Yeah, which makes sense because the it's like a soundstage, right? Like that that yeah. is a set. They did shoot in the streets of New York a little bit, but that is obviously something that you build and you make that a much more filmable space. So mm-hmm. I think I saw in your notes they made the ceilings tall enough for Kevin Garnett to fit in. Yeah. Right. So yeah, Kevin Garnett's pretty tall. So uh, like right there, that should give you a clue that they built the space probably so you have enough space to like, or the space is adaptable maybe in some way mm-hmm. that you can put your cameraman in the corner of the room and still be able to shoot at 150 millimeters and capture yeah. things in the room. Because the thing with long lenses too is you have a minimum focal length. So mm-hmm. I know on. The 70 to 200 millimeter that I use, the focal length, you can't get closer than a meter and a half to something or else that you can't focus it no matter what. Yeah. Like it's just the way the lens works. Obviously, my lens is not like these lenses. These are cinema lenses. They would they would have probably a lower f-stop. So you could get mm-hmm. a more just a specific focal length. However, there still would be a minimum on on a telephoto lens so you got to keep that in mind too the camera has to be a certain distance away at some points yeah we we talked about this in um point break about telephoto lenses that's right they're they're long lenses and they shoot things generally that are very far away so if you're using them to an effect like in this um again 
Darius Kanji would have to be a minimum distance away from Sandler, from Kevin Garnett, from uh, Lakeith Stanfield, from Julia Fox, and follow them. He's panning around. He's he's moving. Doesn't know where they're going. And the other thing is, you're saying, you know, cinema lenses. They're much more expensive. They're better made. They have more capabilities, like a lower f-stop, which means the camera is. Um, they refer to it as being faster, right? Yes. It can let more light in. And, or the lens is faster and it can let more light in. However, when you do that, your depth of field that is in focus gets narrower and narrower. So remember, blocking is partially for like left to right movement, right? You want to have the composition of the shot, essentially the, the, the rectangle of the frame. You want the people in it where you want them to be. But depth is important too. Right, So if he doesn't know if they're going to walk towards the camera or away from the camera and say he's shooting wide open on the lowest f-stop, um, that means it's a matter of inches where their face is going to be in focus. So he's, it's, it's not just following along one axis, it's, upon, it's along both as, as Kanji is walking around and following these characters. And that's not to say that Kanji is necessarily pulling focus at the same time. Usually you have a focus puller anyways on most movies. For this, mm. I would think it'd be extremely important to have a focus puller separate and i've actually done the job of a focus puller before and it is it is a ton of pressure uh it's stressful and not just saying that to my own horn but it's a it's a huge pressure situation because you're not high up on the crew order you're the focus Mm -hmm. puller and yet if you mess up then everybody's got to redo the shot yeah, yeah. It's if it's not, not in focus, it doesn't matter how good of a performance it was. It doesn't matter how, how on point the lighting was or the composition or whether the boom mic was the correct distance from the person speaking. Everything funnels down to that in the in the workflow order, even though you can't call the shots or be like, I'm actually having trouble getting Sandler's eyes in focus. Could he stand still? Yeah. So there'd be no there'd be no holdups like that on something like this. So either so I'm I, I'm assuming most DPs of Kanji's pedigree would have like their focus puller that they bring with them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that'd be my guess, but I I didn't look into any of that. I'm just guessing. That's all speculation there. But yeah. nevertheless, all of this is to highlight how hard this movie would be to actually shoot with a camera in the same room as these actors. Uh, just the unpredictability, the speed of the lenses, and even like the fact that they shot on film, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. This yeah. is a so, grainy again, film stock that they're using too. Yeah. So meaning they're you're changing cartridges. You're not shooting digital here. Yeah. I also think this is a good opportunity to go again as briefly as we can through another concept we haven't talked about, which is anamorphic lenses. Okay. Um, which were very specifically chosen for this movie. Um, Kanji, let me find all my notes on anamorphic lenses. What does Kanji say about this? He said they do justice to the faces. And part of it was, I mean, the Safdies called uh, Kanji a necromancer because they thought he brought dead things to life. He, there was a lot of, like, sort of life in these subjects. And, I mean, at its briefest, and correct me wherever necessary, Tay, anamorphic lenses are different from spherical lenses, right? Spherical lenses, all the elements or the glass within the lens are perfectly spherical. They're round along their perimeter, their edge. Right, um, Yeah. Anamorphic lenses use some spherical, but also some oval lenses or uh, elements within the lens, which distorts and squeezes more like a wider image onto the same camera sensor, essentially. So originally it would be used to get more information, a wider shot onto a limited sensor. 
um, which makes it ideal for widescreen aspect ratio. So if you're thinking um, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, There Will Be Blood. Anything on IMAX um, that Nolan shot pretty much. Yep. Would be anamorphic. However, anamorphic has what I think have now become cinematic hallmarks. But otherwise, like in a vacuum, you might consider to be issues with your image, which is that um, there is softer focus, uh, narrower field of sharper, like tack sharp focus. There's more distortion and there's um, this fall off area, which is outside of the key focus part of the frame. It more quickly and drastically goes out of focus along the edges. Um, And you also have... Um, oval bokeh so bokeh is a is a a, a camera image concept um, which refers to like out of focus elements and the shape that they take so they're just sort of like these little like light artifacts that are out of focus in the background you'll know exactly what they are if you can't picture them or you don't know already but it's it's virtually impossible for me to describe in words uh, it's the kind of thing you just have to see so make sure you check out the video yeah and all is to say that this does make shooting more difficult, but it allows for a wider range of flexibility for the cinematographer and director afterwards if you shoot anamorphic. Uh, it does lock you into a, a way of shooting, but you can kind of stretch out your image a bit more. You have a bit more creativity with the frame afterwards. Um, I like. I, I have heard that it delivers a bit more of like a real-world uh, aesthetic. Like it, it replicates more the way we see from our eyes than a spherical lens. And okay. also anamorphic lenses, like a lot of these downfalls that Tim has just mentioned in terms of, you know, it create, it's like a, there's more grain, it's uh, tougher to light. You can fix all this by adding more lighting. You just need mm-hmm. to actually commit to that kind of aesthetic and that um, way of working when you're on the set. So if you pay close attention, there is so much practical lighting in this movie and practical lighting is lights that you can see that are actually being used to create light in the film so not set lights but lights that are like you know part of the set design that are creating the light in the room there is so much naturally squeezed in and that's not even considering the how many production lights are actually on the actors as well yeah yeah and uh going back to what we said earlier yeah anamorphic lenses are generally slower in quotation marks so they can't let in as much light which is why yeah you need more artificial lighting to sort of brighten up the space that you're capturing the the last thing i just want to say about it is i think it's very easy to be like oh anamorphic lenses are difficult and cinematic in their look and kind of cool i think if you're first getting into photography yeah it should be stated there is no right or wrong it's just how you use it deacons who we love on this podcast and we we've sung his praises over and over prefers sphericals Mm -hmm. um he uses largely spherical lenses and then he crops his image to make it wide but obviously he's more focused on not having to pump in more light that he wants better focus things like that um terrence malick uses spherical lenses because in that application uh for i think it's tree of life like he wanted this more realistic natural look so you can argue anamorphic lenses are more likely more along to the way that we see things another cinematographer is going to argue you know spherical lenses do not corrupt the image or distort That's it right. at all yeah so it lies more naturally and it all depends on how you use it like anamorphic lenses were used for Lots of movies that maybe you wouldn't remember anything about how they looked, like Avengers Endgame or Aladdin. 
um, the the remake, but they're also used obviously for stunning movies like There Will Be Blood. So again, it's not the tool; it's how you use it. I'm still I'm I'm sure the Russo brothers still were amped and talked to everybody they could about how they use an anamorphic <laughs> lens in Avengers Endgame. I yeah, that's the thing. I do think it's often likely a shortcut for yeah, some people to be like, we want this to look like cinema not like i need to look big movie or a franchise event right like if i need a shorthand for prestige shoot it on film shoot it on anamorphic but don't go any further than that right don't don't think more more critically about how these tools are going to be applied so yeah does not equate to successful art necessarily absolutely um so with our, our little lessons about about um focal lengths and f-stops and anamorphics out of the out of the way a couple more things i just wanted to get in before we go to our scene i think the script was really neat because like um the way that they sort of put this together was they had to reverse engineer it because they had been working on this script from the late aughts and it was around 2010 where they first approached sandler and they couldn't even get past his representation um they hadn't made good time yet they had just done their more independent movies so they kept developing the script and they kept looking for the right people to be in it. And as time went on, the NBA player and the specific year setting for the movie had to keep changing because to get an NBA player into the movie, it had to be someone who was recently retired but still in shape and kind of looked like they were still playing and could play themselves. Well, they also that, needed... so they actually, one of the contenders was a guy named Joel Embiid who still plays actually. So they weren't all retired <laughs> yeah. options. Yeah, um, but they also needed to fit the script and what happens in the third act. They needed someone who had a great game and then a horrible game and then a great game. And they said on the commentary, KG ended up fitting all this because essentially when they got Sandler, they got the budget for May 24 and Netflix. Everything was ready to go. KG had recently retired. They were going to shoot in the fall, which meant they definitely couldn't have any active NBA players because they'd be practicing and playing nonstop. There you go. But they needed three games that were generally in the Northeast so he could be in and out of New York and it would make sense how he could be there and also be playing games elsewhere. And they wanted them all to be real games. So they just went through all all these game records and they found what was largely like a very iconic and memorable uh, set of games. Uh, now, Tay, you told me before we started, you were a, a Celtics fan around the time that, that KG was, was on this streak. Yeah, I kind of grew up as a Celtics fan for not any specific reason other than I really liked repping the green and white. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I got my Jersey on right here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll I, be a video podcast someday. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm uh, wearing my Paul Pierce Jersey right now. So uh, that should, if anyone is a fan of that era of basketball, you should know that that was, uh, he was, Paul Pierce was also a big part of this Boston Celtics team with Kevin Garnett and a guy named Ray Allen. Um, just, in case you know our avid movie listeners are not into sports, I think it's it, it is worth noting some things about Kevin Garnett, who is one of the most legendary players of his era, uh, widely considered one of the best power forwards ever to play basketball. Um, and this team in 2008 was like this team of destiny, Boston Celtics. They were Boston was really bad for a long time after being one of the most storied NBA franchises. They were bad for a while, went out and got two mega stars in one summer who were Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett and uh, Kevin Garnett specifically had been the best player on a terrible team his whole career 
and this is the end of his career, and he gets traded to a team where he can win a championship, and they end up going all the way and winning, and he had one of the most famous runs ever in NBA playoff history just because he was someone who they didn't think was ever going to win, and he led this team of destiny to an NBA championship. The What we see in Uncut Gems is actually the semifinals against Philadelphia, which they obviously end up winning, and they went on to beat the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA final that year. Uh, he had the very famous line, anything is possible. I'll put the quote in here. League MVP, defensive player of the year. Now it's time to add to your resume, NBA champion. How does that sound? Man, I'm so, I'm so hyped right now. Anything's possible. Anything's possible! And it was very, very famous. And Kevin Garnett is also known as this very intense athlete who would do anything to win. It really mm-hmm. fits the character that he comes to play, of the caricature he comes to play of himself in the movie, which I yeah, don't like think a is a big stretch. competitive, obsessive. Yes, right? yeah, and... Everything that I know about Kevin Garnett, they matched the tone equally in this movie. It was, it's really cool from that perspective because I just remember like audio bites of him just being a snappy, uh, brutish kind of guy. Like he was a real bully out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and he was already known to be very superstitious, which yeah. fit really well with him getting this opal and like thinking it, it it's helping him win. He also, I mean, I think it's one of the one of the cheapest, most effective visual tricks in movies is get a really tall person and a short person. And it's interesting. It doesn't <laughs> matter what they're saying. doesn't matter how well the shot is. It's Height differentials are the easiest way to make a shot interesting, yeah. I think. <laughs> and Kevin Garnett is 6'11". Yeah, he's, he's very He's tall. in this jewelry shop, and no one is, no one is past his shoulders. Right, Sandler's craning his his uh, his neck to look up at him. Same with Lakeith Stanfield. He's got these massive bodyguards, both of which he's he's a head above. Um, they are. That's like all great. Twice and I think like credit where but... credits due. He, I think he's great in this. Like I think he's really good, like, and I think really it's, good. Yeah, I think it's kind. Of, it's wild. Like every time I watch it, it stood out to me more that like, oh yeah, this guy's a professional athlete. <laughs> Never acted before. And, like, the Safties worked with him and got this out of him. And I guess they're saying in the commentary, every day he'd show up, everything perfectly memorized. So all they had to work on was, again, getting someone to act who has no professional or experience in acting. Right? He, he obviously, he, he has charisma, and yes, you have to be a personality. And I intensity. On He's when got intensity. Yeah, you need intensity when you're a power forward. You need to be personality when you're in the NBA and you want to be famous and and noted and you want people to follow your quotes and and to seek you out he's the most intense player i've ever seen there's no room for soft there's no room for for a person who's going to give give ground as an icon obviously you know like michael jordan all those people they they understand the value of having a personality and a persona um but there's a difference between that and being able to do what they pull off in this especially with some of the longer shots and, and things like that. I think it's super impressive. Yeah, and you can say like, oh, he showed up mem- having the script memorized and that's Im- and that's impressive in itself, to be honest. I've been on many sets where that's not the case, but 
for him to like also be adaptive with the Safties and Sandler and the way that I'm assuming a lot of the script evolved into more things than what was just mm-hmm. written on paper. He just seemed to be a part of every step of this movie. Like every scene that he's in is just dialed in and mm-hmm. there's not a beat missed, right? Like there, it'd be so easy to be like, he's good in every scene except there's like, there's that one moment, but no, it's like flawless. His performance is very consistently good throughout. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, and like that's the thing, like other, other like you know not to not to bash jordan too much but like it'd be easier to do um it'd be much easier to do space jam than it would be to do this space jam is all like there are so many aspects of control and consistency in so many other types of movies right where yeah if you're not a professional actor you're like i know i just have to come stand on this mark i have to say these lines we'll do it a couple times and the the director can kind of coach me on oh i want more anger there or um, I want you to say that slower, right? All these things that aren't going to be in place on the Uncut Gem set where walk wherever you want. Sandler's going to change it every single time he does this. No no take is going to be the same as the last one. All these things that really uh, would challenge uh, like an experienced actor. Um, and the fact that KG kept up, I think it's, it's just, it's really um, astounding. Now, I I did want to say to tie all this back to the way they shot it with the telephoto lenses, it does, I think, benefit an actor when you shoot on a longer lens because you're not in their face. Uh, So for a non-professional actor like Kevin Garnett, he walks in and there's no camera like that he has to like, you know, be aware of like bumping into or anything. It's far Mm -hmm. enough away where that's never really even maybe in his line of vision at times, right? Obviously, you can tell there's probably a whole crew in like behind where, like where he can see but there's not yeah. a camera like in his way if that makes sense that's true he'd be able to be more physical in the space yes. and be a little bit more akin to doing like a little stage scene yeah on the kmh jeweler set with sandler and fox and and stanfield and the bodyguards etc yeah it so there is that benefit but i'm not saying that makes it very much easier i'm just saying it's just one less thing that maybe a non-professional would have to create anxiety or to make them stumble a bit Mm -hmm. but uh but with that i think we should probably hop into our scene and some of the other stuff we wanted to bring up can certainly fit into this Mm -hmm. yeah so our scene today takes place at uh 105 40 so an hour five minutes and 40 seconds into the movie and it goes to an hour and 11 minutes into the movie so it's pretty much dead on the the midway point scene again uh, which we keep telling ourselves we're not going to do, but they tend to be the most juicy, <laughs> intricate scenes worth talking about. Uh, so, there are no rules. We're in season two. <laughs> no rules from here on out. So in this scene, Kevin and Damani return to Howard's store with the opal. They get stuck in the double glass entrance and have to wait, frustrated as Howard and his staff try to get the door open. The scene stars Adam Sandler, Kevin Garnett, Lakeith Stanfield, and the non-professional actor Roman Persitz who plays the jeweler slash, uh, what's it called? The evaluator? Like, the, like, technician in the back? Yeah, he, he's the guy who I, te- tests the metals and all that. An appraiser? Yeah, yeah, I think he that's what he... That's no, or else they would have got him to I don't know anything about, about the Diamond District. <laughs> yeah. But so the actor's <laughs> name is Roman Persitz, and in the movie his name is Roman, so I thought that was, like, yeah. he must yeah, and he, be he of that profession for... or something. 
Yeah, he works for, in an earlier scene, you'll see in in sort of the outer hallway outside of KMH Jewelers, where it's just a hallway of other jewelers. Um, one of them comes out when um, KG's guys beat up Arno's guys. That jeweler comes out, Roman works for him, and that was like maybe the main guy that Sandler shadowed. Oh, that was um, him, eh? To try to learn. I think his name's Tony something, I want to say, but... I mean, yeah, we can talk very briefly about yeah, Sandler in this. He's head to toe become Howard. Like, I think it, I think it's a wonderful performance. Uh, and he, he spent apparently months sort of shadowing people in the in the Diamond District and picking up little character traits. Like the ones that the Safties always like to point out is that when he first shows Garnett the the Black Opal, he says, "Hang on for a second. Go through my look. Be careful. That's my best look. All right. I want you to look." In a loop is like a magnifying lens that that jewelers use to to inspect carrots. Um, he's like, use this loop; it's my best loop. And they love using that as an example of like he got that from a real jeweler. And it's that the fact that these guys are always selling. Yeah, right. Like I have the I'm best just like, loop. Here's a loop. Like it's a magnifying glass. It's, but he's like, no, 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 it's my best loop. This is very important to me. But I'm letting you use it. Things like that. Um, but anyway, yeah. Like we we picked the scene because I think it 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 exemplifies the sort of anxiety of this movie. Um, how out Howard is always a little bit behind the eight ball, like all the things that he's overextending himself on. They're always sort of chasing him. And this is a great scene where they all pile up at once. And then there's the way the Safties like to approach their exposition is by not having it as much as possible and laying groundwork for later in the movie. When this, um, this faulty door becomes a, a key key factor in the final scene. Yeah, the scene fits so nicely into this chaotic mess of uh, Howard's mistakes and shortcomings, yet it brilliantly sets up the final scene of the movie where it hinges on the antagonists being locked in the same entranceway, the bulletproof glass entranceway here, and having this really annoying scene, honestly, in the middle of the movie didn't stand out to me until I re- like it, it does stand out, but I didn't realize until we were doing a research for the scene that this is the midway point, therefore mm-hmm. making it that much more of an impactful moment. And this is where a lot changes in the story. And I don't, mm-hmm. maybe I didn't piece that together until realizing it was the midway point, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in the commentary, the Safties, they say exposition smells bad. Uh, so this is their, this is an example of their pathological approach to screenwriting um, in that they refuse to do conventional exposition. So they constantly have to incorporate ideas and components that will come back later um, like this broken door. Right. So rather than have somebody talk about it or have somebody trying to fix it and Sandler arguing with like a handyman or something like that, have it be a function of something, have it ratchet up the anxiety. How's the man in? Wow. I am. I am. How's the Go, go to the other buzzer, please. Hurry up, hurry up. Right there. Go ahead. God damn it. Hang on, sorry. Open this shit up, man. Sorry. We don't got time for this shit. They also they were they were asking themselves when they were writing the script: Is it even okay to have something this stressful happen for no reason? Right. Other than the reason being, well, we need people to understand about the vestibule for the last scene. Because if you look at it, the number of things that are going on here. So for about a half hour. The oh, yeah, Opal I like this been, list. Yeah. For about a half hour, the Opal has been missing, right? Uh, uh, earlier in the movie, 
uh, Howard gives the opal to KG to hold on to. He has a great game. And then it's scene after scene of him trying to get the opal back in time for his auction. And uh, Damani sort of like, you know, punting the ball down the field and pushing the deadline back and, and ducking him. And then I was right, refusing to get it, things like that. So your number one stress point. KG is here and he's showing him the opal and the opal is just on the other side of this glass and the scene the the proper scene even though we cut it down a little bit because we didn't have to talk about all of it the proper scene opens with him speaking to the auctioneer the person who runs the auction company who's basically just berating him for not having submitted the opal yet so you know that the opal he needs it so badly and it's just on the other side of glass so right before Um, the scene starts though he's actually talking to KG's representation Mm-hmm. He's, th- he's threatening to sue representation, the Celtics, things like that. Um, so, you know, like the Opal is obviously key. It's what this movie is. It's the MacGuffin of the of the entire movie. And it's right there. He almost has it back. He almost he almost can can has what he needs to go to the auction, make the money that he needs to pay back Arno and have some left over. He still he thinks he's going to make a million dollars off of it. Going to be a huge deal. Um, a smaller minor one but a nice little line for KG's bodyguard one one of his only lines in the movie is he he just gets to say that I'm claustrophobic I'm claustrophobic okay all right good there it is all right right so that to me is triggering Mm because you realize because then you look at the space and you're like that's like two big dudes and Lakeith Stanfield in one small little room it is it it's tiny um they also, um, you know, they're they're talking about how they want KG's ring back, which he gave as collateral, like the the championship ring for the Celtics, and uh, and and you know that Howard pawned it for money that he placed on a bet, which was then canceled by Arno. Um, Julia called right before this scene, uh, post her argument with Howard about the weekend. Um, Flawless is also outside in the hallway. So Flawless is this other jeweler who provided that Michael Jackson on the cross piece. Um, from earlier in the movie that Howard pawns during the credits. So yeah. there's another thing come another, you know, chicken come home to roost. Um, they're negotiating through the glass because KG wants to buy the opal. Howard saying, I've got to go into auction. He's like, can I rent it for tonight? I need it for the game. Um, and this whole time then, they're still trying to get the door open. And yeah, uh, Howard's got two employees working on it and it's, there's continual interruptions of him being like, okay, push it now. Try it now. And yeah, the employee keeps pressing. Like, I love there are these nice little insert shots of her, her like, manicured nail pressing this button. You hear the buzzer. They slam the, they slam the door. It doesn't open. At a certain point, Damani just starts knocking on the glass nonstop. And I got to do everything. Please, stop knocking. It's not going to help. Go, go. And it's always, it just ratchets up. Like, there's, like, six people talking over each other. Um... It's this incredibly consistent, um, just cacophony. And yeah. you're just like, just get the door open. Like it just, you, you put you on the edge of your seat and you know something so banal. This is going to cross off another thing I wanted to mention, but I will put some sound clips in this episode, but it's going to be mm-hmm. difficult because I have to cut around all the F bombs this movie uses. There's w- a couple, which according to <laughs> Wikipedia has the fourth highest amount of F bombs in any movie in history and mm-hmm. actually has a higher rate than the third place Wolf of Wall Street of F bombs per minute. Yeah, four point one five per minute. And then I mean the number one and number two I would say barely count. Number one is called Swear Net, so it kinda sounds like it's the point. 
And number two is I can't say the word because it is the F-bomb. And we don't do explicit tags here on single-serving cinema. Yeah, it's just the F-word, um, and it's a documentary probably about the F-word. Yeah. So I think Wolf so of really, Wall Street like, still gets number one. It's beat out by one. Wolf of Wall Street, but not even for rate per minute. Yeah, Wolf of Wall Street's long. It has a lot more time. Yes. Uh, so just um, with that note in, I will put some sound effects of this cacophony of noise in to give an <laughs> idea of how crazy this scene is. But mm-hmm. and I think wisely, um, you know, I, I'd love to, if we were doing a, a four-hour podcast, I'd love to talk about Daniel Lopatin's score, um, which I think is phenomenal, um, really um, inspired by uh, Vangelis mm-hmm. and some yep. very neat uh, synthesizer on it and some some other very cool stuff. Maybe maybe I'll pick one of them for for my shout out. But I think wisely, no need for a score in this scene. The sound yeah. design is the score. The people yelling, the buzzer, hammering on that little contact box, pouring in the metal shavings, putting the file in, all that stuff is enough. Yeah, I think that the score worked really well for the movie, but I I really appreciated that there's zero score in this whole scene and it just allows you to be stressed out by this noise because for the most part, I found Lopatin's score to be counteractive with the chaos of the movie in the sense that it was trying to be like the mellow calm mm. of the chaos. And in this scene, you don't get anything to ease that tension. It's just ratcheted up stress. So the this scene originally, it had a 65 shot list mm. uh, that they had to get through. Uh, and at a certain point they realized it'd just be easier if they shot it in one and then cut it apart. So all the stuff with, um, all the stuff with your guys in the vestibule with Howie going from the back to the front, getting Roman, getting his other helpers, that was all shot in one together. And then they input these insert shots with the button presses, the black opal, all that sort of stuff. And that does make a lot of sense because I have it written here. The beginning of the scene starts with six separate 180-degree pans back and forth mm-hmm. between action. There is also a 360 shot in the scene, or almost a 360 shot of Damani as he's kind of realizing the what just happened with when KG leaves. Um, but yeah, so these there this amount of pans, like complete pans or half pans, I guess, just kind of once again highlight that this is a cons one consistent take that they just broke up into pieces and you can kind of see that now that you mention it it's that was what i was noticing it's like oh here's we got a pan and a pan back and then it's like quick insert shot pan pan back quick insert shot it's it's a lot of movement being split by like quick shots and maybe that adds to the (laughs) to the unease of the scene as well i think it's a very wise move because i think again maybe someone more amateur would be like the way to get the anxiety ratcheted up is one unbroken shot. You're stuck in this space with whether you shoot it from inside the vestibule or from not. Um, and you just stay with Howard as he tries to solve this problem. It would be effective, but I think you lose something without those insert shots. Me and too. the other thing that you get by cutting when Howard is talking to KG and Damani and the, and the bodyguard they shoot it from inside the vestibule and vice versa. So you're always shooting through the glass instead of from the side where you're, you're on the side of the glass with the speaker. It's always the opposite. The safety said they really like that. Like you have reflective glass, but you don't see the camera. And they say that that does a subconscious thing to the viewer. It makes it more 
natural because the your brain they they're like subconsciously on the commentary they were saying subconsciously your brain is like i should be able to see the camera lens on that reflection right. but it's just because the angle that they shoot it that you don't um i don't think there's any digital erasure like you have in other like like you know black swan or stuff like that there might be but they also can like the way they shot the specific i'm thinking of the visual of sandler through the glass Mm-hmm. That one, I could see how they would cut the light out because they have the the reflection blocked in a way. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I, I understand that. Um, I think that it translates to a really nice thematic concept in to, or a character maybe building concept throughout the scene too in the sense that we're not just getting this one unbroken take of the event because it's not just stressful to Howard. This scenario mm-hmm. is stressful. I think it's really important to note that it's not everything is not just stressful to howard he's stressing everybody else around him and i think when you cut back to uh his employer who has to keep hitting the button and you keep seeing her finger on it that's her perspective more than it is Mm -hmm. howard's and when you cut to inside the box you're looking at their at uh damani and kg and the bodyguards perspective they're stressed out by this whole thing uh it's not just through Sandler's perspective and that for translates to other characters being stressed equally by the scenario. Now that's a great point. And that's a, a version of precisely what the Safdie say on the commentary track, especially okay. when you get that 360 of Damani, they're like, we found it was really important every now and then you need someone else's perspective. And yes, we haven't so talked too. about Stanfield that much. No, just a, just a huge talent who. Yeah. Even when he goes big, it doesn't feel exaggerated. I feel like he's always locked in. He's on the quieter side. He's generally, his posture is more closed in, whether you watch him on Atlanta or um, uh, Black Messiah, which he yeah. got, he got yeah. nominated for in Clue You Won. Um, I, think, I think just a very powerful performer with a lot of presence who never has to yell to be seen or to be noticed and that 360 spin again telephoto lenses so you have that extreme parallax effect where the background is swiveling super fast behind your your subject and you see on you see the calculations in his eyes where he's like the arrangement that i made with howie before the movie started where like he sells the watches out of howie's shop it's a it's a subject in an earlier scene he's like this isn't working out anymore yeah this guy's not i'm not getting anything from this guy and then you have the confrontation in the back room which even though the vestibule thing has been solved for now um which relieves some of the tension then you got the argument in the background back room between damani and howard while at the same time Howard gets a call about his colon- colonoscopy results. Is everything okay? Where's the f- papers now? Bitch ass. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Man, this Howard, I'm. Uh, what do I got? So there's just more than one conversation happening here. And this isn't mm-hmm. the first time Howard's been at his desk ignoring somebody who's trying to reach him at a more than just like a friendly level. They're trying to reach him on like you need to smarten the hell up kind of level. Mm-hmm. And he's just ignoring him and ignoring him. And you just, I don't know, the whole time I, you just think Damani's going to do something nasty. And then he ends up pouring. Is it a Powerade that he pours in the tank? Pours like Gatorade. Yeah. They were calling it Gatorade on the commentary. Okay. Okay. How many acres? Whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You're going to kill the fish. What the fuck? My fish! My fish! My fish! My fish! Get a glass. Get a glass. Hey, so he pours Gatorade in the fish tank, and then 
it's the only thing that seems to snap Howard out of his like ignorant trans of talking on the phone while trying to ignore Damani. And he freaks out. Well, about yeah, because it's his it's his possessions. Yes, exactly. Right? It's his fish. Right. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, a, a very brief tangent here, but I think it's the same thing. They, there's the whole plot line with him and Adina Menzel plays his wife super, like very effectively mm-hmm. um, where he's constantly just trying like they're going to get divorced is the plan. And many um, at a couple points throughout the movie, he's like, well, maybe we don't have to things like that. And the only impression I get is that like, it's his wife. It's his possession. It's another, it's a thing, right? Yeah. And it and, would, and it would not and, benefit and think, him to have the divorce. It benefits him to have the facade of living that mm-hmm. functional family yeah. life. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so Damani, yeah, Damani pours Gatorade into the fish tank. Um, on the commentary, the Safdies like to point out that that's their little nod to one of the, one of the plagues that Egypt faced, uh, the Euphrates river turned, turned to blood. Um, so nice little little, little uh, Easter egg there. I never would have um, got that until I saw it in your notes. Yeah, and I mean, and and also like they there's another scene right where they go through all the plagues at the dinner table for um for the the Jewish holiday that that the Ratner family is celebrating. Um, but again, yeah, I, that's not my background, so it's not something I would have picked up if I hadn't taken the time to watch it for a fifth time with the commentary. Um, and just the other the line that I like pointing out, it stood out to me a lot this time is. Damani points out that KG offered Howard $250,000, quarter of a million dollars for a rock. And it's a nice little reminder that like gold, um, silver and precious gems, they're precious because of scarcity. And I mean, obviously gold and silver had their uses, their functions that are largely defunct now Mm -hmm. um, for medicinal purposes, things like that. At this point, they only have value because we like them. They have no function. And you're and it's just a nice little note where it's like this whole movie about this black opal is this thing that has perceived value. It will not do anything for anyone. It may it might make money, right? And it does, which can do things, but in and of itself it has no purpose. And the crux issue of the film is that not everybody sees it at the same value. Yep. Which hurts everybody at the same time yeah absolutely which causes all these all these issues and and again overextension and underextension and underinvestment and 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 things like that but yeah i just think it's a super powerful scene it's and it's more one of those scenes that i think we talked about because it's a great example of the things that this movie does well many of those things that appear in other scenes yeah and we like you know i'd love to talk to you about the conclusion but we talk about a scene that sets up the final scene really really well and i think we covered a lot of bases just by touching on this really important scene Mm -hmm. in the film and it's becoming a recurring thing now where we just sort of realize when we finally get the chance to talk about a director or in this case directors that we love we're gonna spend the first two-thirds of the episode talking about them and then realize we have to get to the scene yeah Um, Yeah. but hopefully we'll come back to the safties within a couple months we'll see but um, yeah i really hope they make that's all i got i hope they make another one pretty soon so we'll have uh, more to talk about but uh i'm man i mean i know we don't talk about tv on here but we are talking safties they're making a show with i don't know if you watch any nathan for you nathan fielder stuff they're making a show with him not his new Um, show no not the rehearsal it's another one it's some sort of genre bending uh tv show okay uh, with with Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone, which I'm I'm super interested in, but of course we're not going to talk about it on here. 
because uh, it's not a movie. So I hope we get another movie from them within a couple years too. Right on. That's exciting. Them and Nathan Fielder will be, that's uh, quite the clash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, as for shout outs, I've got a very quick one. Uh, I didn't know until doing the research for this, but it's Tilda Swinton's voice um, who she represents the auction, the auction firm that, that Howard's trying to work with, with the Opal. So she um, she talks with him in his office when she's sort of berating him for not submitting it yet. And then also you can hear her voice. They actually use it over the phone with the receptionist at the yeah. at the firm. Yep. The next day you can hear her sort of saying like, no, 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 don't give the phone to Howard. Don't give it. I don't want to talk to him. And the receptionist gives it over, which I think is a great point. And um, y- we can you can think that this is an insignificant cameo voiceover thing because it's just her voice. But I genuinely think that they needed to cast someone who could act with their voice for this part. Because mm-hmm. you do hear so much of the interaction with Howard. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, Howard's got a couple key scenes where he's just juggling phone calls. Again, I love the button inserts every time he hits like line two, line one, uh, headset, speaker phone, hang up. Um, and uh, those voice actors... They, they're doing important work, even though it's just a, a minute at most. And But they're also really important support for Sandler. Because it's not easy to do that acting back at it. right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's key. And it's just nice that she's in it. She's a phenomenal actor who we haven't talked about yet. But um, I'm sure we'll get Constantine in here sometime. <laughs> yeah. we'll, get, uh, we'll get a Lynn Ramsey, perhaps. Maybe a, a Guadagnino. We'll see. Michael Clayton came up on the uh, on the the roundup recently. Ooh, I'd talk Michael um, Clayton with you. Yeah, big fan. Yeah, me too. But uh, what do you got for the shout out? Uh, my shout out is the intro colonoscopy scene. I just love. I in my head the movie starts with the opal coming out of his, mm-hmm. and then the camera comes out of basically his rectum and into the yeah. colonoscopy room. But it's not yeah. how the movie starts. It actually starts in Ethiopia, which honestly I mm-hmm. completely wiped from my brain forget almost every time yeah so uh yeah. i really love movies that start kind of with this abruptness and such an impactful visual um actually a movie a yorgos lanthimos movie uh, the killing of a sacred deer starts with uh an open organ surgery mm-hmm. of some kind as well and it's like almost the same takeaway it's like the camera kind of backs out of the surgery room and it's uh this it's the sterile environment it's something about the vulnerability of the character in the in the hospital bed. Uh, I really like the way this sets up Howard as someone who, I, I don't know, you don't see him this vulnerable again the rest of the movie. He never, like, once he once he's off that table, he kind of never stops moving. Yeah, right? and it's a very interesting um, contrast to the rest of the film. It's a great way to start. I will just note from the commentary, they say, when you see the monitor of the, the colonoscopy, they're like, this is the most brutally expositional thing we've ever put on screen because it has Howard's name. Yep. It has his age. It has the doctor's name might even have the hospital on it. And they were almost like embarrassed by how much information is given up uh, just point blank and in, in, instead of just naturally given. Um, but I thought that, I thought that was a funny note from them. But So there is a way to do that even more directly, which would be like inserts of the name and inserts of the mm. age versus like the camera pulling back. That's just making you yeah. do the work and you have to like seek the information out on the hospital screen. Yeah. 
it's not like him checking in for the colonoscopy exactly. and they're like name and he's like ratner howard and they're like age what profession right there yeah. are, there are clumsier ways to do this i don't i don't think anyone cared when they saw the screen and they're like that i don't think anyone called it lazy other than the safties i and i appreciate the safties not wanting to do exposition in that way i really do i respect that so much but i don't think that this is an egregious way to break that no <laughs> i think like you i listen to the commentary for good time too like the the guys have a pretty wry tone they don't take themselves too seriously they just love what they do and uh they clearly they have their hang-ups like stuff like this but they're not they're not beating themselves too hard all signs of good filmmaking um, man mm-hmm. uh so as i mentioned before next episode's going to be the listener's choice uh for a24 we've likely already done that vote already um, but uh, make sure you follow us on Instagram so you can take play, take part in those votes. Uh, and as for our recommendations, uh, Tay and I are both going way back to, to mid-century here. Yeah, I thought um, I was going to have the older one for sure this week. No, well, so after watching this movie and then another podcast I like, The Rewatchables, did an episode on There Will Be Blood. I was like, well, oh, yeah. someone mentioned There Will Be Blood, which means I have to watch it. That's just kind of how it works. So I watched that again. And then I, this movie that I'm recommending, I hadn't seen before, but I understood ah. that it was a large inspiration for There Will Be Blood, uh, that PTA was watching it on repeat while he was writing the script. And the, both those movies and this movie, Uncut Gems, all have a pretty common thread of obsession and greed. Uh, I'm recommending Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a John Huston film from 1948 starring Humphrey Bogart and Huston's father, um, Walter Huston, who won the Academy Award for it, who is just incredible the houston family is just gifted there's a scene in this movie that snuck up on me in a way that it's been a while since i've had this experience just watching a movie at home it was incredible i'd highly recommend it um you know for for an older movie i know people the the common fears like is it slow is it uninteresting you know all those things like it doesn't have this modern pace it's it's a it's just over two hours i want to say and it moves really well uh it's very compelling um I'd say there's only one artifact of old movies in it, and that's where they kind of, at a certain point, Bogart starts narrating his inner thoughts. Because, again, they weren't quite as subtle, I think, in, in convention back then. I remember that, To yeah. just let you watch an actor silently try to get across what their what their inner feelings are. But other than that, like, I really love this movie. So I, I, I would definitely recommend it if you're looking for, for something that you haven't seen you want to get into older movies, this is a great way in. Yeah, and if you're not someone who's familiar with Humphrey Bogart, it's pretty cool to see him act, especially in retrospect. He's such a star power of Hollywood's mm. history. It's it's cool going back and seeing what star power used to look like. And uh, I always think yeah. that when I see Humphrey Bogart stuff. Uh, great pick, Tim. I, I love that movie. Um, my pick this week also went pretty old, not as far back as 48, but 1958, I have Elevator to the Gallows, which is a late French New Wave movie, or maybe a mid-French New Wave movie by Louis Mallet. Um, I picked this movie because when I was watching Uncut Gems, I was trying to think of any other movies that you're just watching characters make such insufferable decisions and not wanting them to keep making those decisions, and then mm. watching decisions continually backfire on your protagonist. It's not something that's super common in film. So I found another one that kind of resembles that feeling of you're watching characters doom themselves to bad by bad decision making and creating extenuating circumstances for themselves and elevated to the gallows delivers on all those fronts and it's a really sharp looking 
crisp black and white movie. I really like this. Uh, it was a recent watch a few months ago of mine, and I I have talked about it a lot to a lot of people. So highly recommend Elevator to the Gallows from 1958. Fantastic. I'm definitely adding that to the list. I haven't seen that one. Uh, but with that, as always, uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, make sure you come back for whatever movie you voted for in two weeks. And uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a review. It does a lot of good for us. Uh, connect with us on Instagram. We're there at SSC Pod. And uh, if you like, if you're on Letterboxd as well, I'm on there. You can find me. I'm building out lists that are all the movies we've talked about and also all our recommendations. So if you're looking to track those in a way, there's a nice, easy place to do it. Uh, but with that, um, I honestly, I don't think I won the bet, Tay. I don't think I said effective enough. We didn't do the tagline. Uh, I think that's the third time. We didn't do tagline. So, I mean, I got that part of the yeah. parlay. If I just hang on, effective, effective, effective. There, I just won. <laughs> This is how I win. That's such a Howard move. <laughs>